1973, a group of indigenous artists formed a collective. The press called them the Indian Group of Seven. Their goal? To raise the profile of indigenous art. It was all or nothing. We're representing all our people. And create a permanent space and galleries for indigenous artists in Canada and around the world. That was really a rock star moment for me. I'm Soleil Lunier, and this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional native Indian artists, Inc. Listen wherever podcasts are heard. Art Slice is a different dive into art history. We goof around, we curse, you learn from it, but don't expect a typical lecture. You're welcome. From Welcome to Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. I'm Stephanie Duenas. And I'm Russell Shoemaker. And welcome. Welcome, new listeners. If you're just joining us for the first time, we are an art history podcast. But we're like a we're like a cool art history podcast. We're not your mama's art history podcast. <laughs> we're cool. We're sitting behind chili lights. I mean, if you like, we would go to the museum with your Uncle Fred, your Uncle Fred who hates art. And he, they got, you know, he collects like vintage uh, beer steins. What? Yeah, and he's like he's like the guy who walks around the museum, and he's and he's he's like going around, he's pinching the uh, the naked butts everywhere. <gasps> no, yeah, oh ew. yeah, and he's loving it too. He's like, Stop. he's like, ah. oh my god, he's taking selfies with the naked That's butts. Disgusting. But what's that, Uncle Fred? He spots a vintage St. Pauli girl beer stein in the middle of an Edward Keenholz piece, and he is loving it. We might have changed his mind about art a little bit. So when he gets into his 1992 Honda Civic and drives <laughs> off into the sunset, it's time for us to get serious. Real talk. So we talk about the work and we decide if it goes in the Art Slice Museum, which Stephanie keeps telling me isn't real. It's, I mean, it's imaginary. No. So Stephanie, what are we talking about today? Today we'll be discussing two studies by Vincent Van Gogh based on prints by Utagawa Hiroshige. Like a master study? Yes, and okay. we'll get into what a master study is as well. All right, let's get All into right. it. First and foremost, I'm going to throw three terms at you. Um, just give me your initial thoughts. Don't don't go too deep. Don't think too much about it. All right, ready? What is influence to you? Influence. The word influence. The, in, the word influence. Yeah. Uh, as far as like how it's related to art. Obviously. <laughs> um, I think it is being affected by... An artist, or not even an artist, just something you see out in the world, or just like a thought that you might have had, or something that you've read, to the extent that it changes you in some way. Like, I I think of when I read Against Nature, which has some fucked up shit in it, don't get me wrong, it's an older book, but the way that the author described color really changed the way that I looked at my paintings okay. and how I used color. So okay. I would say that is influence. Um, so kind of like Kandinsky was inspired by... Haystacks. Inspired haystacks. Yeah. Yeah. Color, music. He had a lot of influences and they all made their way into his work. Um, and yeah, then he was forever chasing that haystack feeling. That sweet, sweet high. That haystack high. He's got, yeah. He's got injected into his veins. Okay. <laughs> What about your thoughts on appropriation? So... Yeah, I know. That's kind of a loaded one. Yeah, that one's tricky. (laughs) Because appropriation in art, I think historically, right, means when, like, Andy Warhol used 
Campbell's soup cans. So there's that, but there's also appropriation, which is happens in art a lot. That's that's maybe a little bit closer to the actual term appropriation, which is when something, either a thought or something tangible or an image or an idea is taken and used for either that same purpose or a little bit different of a purpose or I mean it's really it's a slippery term so you can do that with or without permission yeah yeah, I think it's still appropriation so like I think of not just pop art Andy Warhol using soup cans but like memes I think memes are a good example Spongebob covering himself with sand means something else depending on like who is making the meme they're repurposing it doesn't have to do with the actual moment in the cartoon right Okay. Well, yeah, I That's think... That's probably a real loose definition of appropriation. appropriation. Well, like that Madonna song, mm-hmm. Hung Up, they mm-hmm. use that little clip from ABBA's Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. That's honestly the first time I actually, like, it clicked to me what appropriation was, which was, like, years ago, but... Yeah, I, I, Madonna's interesting, because that, that's appropriation with permission. Absolutely, she, she, she had, had to permission. Had to buy yeah. that clip. Right. But when she appropriated, or even fucking straight up stole... Lenore Carrington and Remedios Faro imagery for that video we talked about. Which video was that? Bedtime Stories. I doubt that she was asking permission for that. Probably not. That is appropriating, almost stealing. Yeah, it can be wrong, it can be right, it can be with or without permission. Comes in all sorts of shapes and colors. Yeah, there's a whole rainbow of appropriation. Many shades of appropriation. Many shades. All right, one more. Okay. You ready? Theft, with a capital T. Well, so I was a... I was a victim of art theft, Stephanie. Oh, yeah. When I was in right. my last year of undergrad, uh, one of my buddies came to my studio. He was going to a different school. We were just hanging out. He sat with me for a whole day watching me make my work. And then lo and behold, a couple years later, I see him at his school making exact copies of my paintings, just, just changing them here and there. No, and no, he's on no. Facebook, you oh, know, when gosh. Facebook was cool. And everyone's like, oh, I love this. Like, like, heart, heart, heart. And so eventually I had to like talk to the guy and be like, yo. You dude, stole my recipe, dude. Dude. Like, <laughs> so theft is when you are potentially taking food out of someone's mouth because you're just totally taking an idea. So it doesn't only happen in art, but it also happens in fashion as oh, well. Absolutely. Like all the time, um, especially this company, Urban Outfitters. Um, but this was Anthropology. Just a few days ago, they got called out for, yeah, stealing the design and look of a top that was made by these uh, weavers in Oaxaca, Mexico. Oh, they Oaxaca. use special dyes. They make it a certain way on their looms. And then here comes, you know, anthropology. and Digital print, probably shitty pigment, probably looks like shit. They made this design and these beautiful colors into like a soulless digital monstrosity. But Stephanie, didn't Senor Pablo Picasso (laughs) say that great artists steal and lesser artists borrow? I mean, he did, but he was probably honestly... Stealing that from someone else? Yes, who probably (laughs) they themselves took from other people's quotes. I think Senor Picasso is wrong. I think better artists are influenced. I don't think they steal. I agree. So he was wrong. And (laughs) he would be hella ratioed today. (laughs) Bye-bye, Picasso. Yeah, he'd probably be ratioed for a lot of things, though. Yeah, that's another day, another Um, (laughs) discussion. Being influenced is just unavoidable. And if you aren't allowing yourself to be influenced, or you don't know how to be influenced without stealing, then you will never be an artist. No, never. You have to know how to interpret the world around you without just copying what you're doing. It's, you, otherwise, you're just not an art. You're not exploring. You're not, you're not giving yourself 
that experience that, or that opportunity. so few people have, to, which is to be influenced by something, to process that, to change it and let it let that influence change something in you that is unique to you. Right. So you and then you present that to the world. Yeah. There are no shortcuts. No. And guess what? It is apparent when there's a shortcut, especially by artists who put in the work and yeah. they know how much how many hours, how much labor, how much love goes into mm-hmm. it. Okay, listeners, in this episode, we want to talk about how influence can make an artist. Make them who they are. Even an artist like Van Gogh. So remember all the way back to episode one, back to that. That that haystack feeling. Yes, that haystack feeling. So Kandinsky was inspired by music and color. And of course, Claude Monet. Monet himself was inspired by Japanese prints. Like, Big time. Yeah, and they're just starting to show up at this time, right? Yes. So Monet and the Impressionist subject matter, composition, colors, and emotion, they all changed after Japanese art began to circulate for the first time in Europe in the mid-1800s. Okay, but before we get too far, listeners, just as a reminder, you can find all the images we talk about today on our website at artslicepod.com and some of the images on our Instagram page at artslicepod. So Japanese art was unknown to Westerners because only in 1853 did Japan open its ports for the first time in over 200 years. Wow. And they began trading with the West again. I said, yeah, totally, totally because they wanted to. Well, yes and no. <laughs> it was their choice to shut themselves off from the rest right. of the world. That was their choice. Yes. So you're you're right there. It's a long and complicated history. Basically, Japan traded in very limited quantities with just a few European countries. Mm-hmm. The Dutch. Yeah. And I think Portugal for okay. a second. But anyway, that was their choice. They were like, no mas, nobody else. Yeah. We don't want your germs. We don't want your religion. <laughs> exactly. We don't want your Jesus. We don't want your germs. Thank you very much. Then the U.S. and other European countries, the ones that got shut out, kept showing up at Japan's ports with warships, demanding that Japan trade with them again. Please. So Japan, even if they had wanted to say, no, bye, they did not have the weapons to fend off a possible invasion or colonization. Right. So they had no choice but to give in. Japanese art slowly started appearing in Europe and eventually to hundreds of thousands of Parisians at the World's Fair. So what is a World's Fair, Stephanie? A World's Fair is a large international exhibition in which countries from around the world Mm. participate in. Showing how the sausage gets made in Greece. Sure. Yeah, they put some olives in there. (laughs) I just got that. Okay. It was a cultural exchange. It was giving people the opportunity to educate themselves about the world. Yeah. Places and countries they've never been to and probably would never travel to. Right. right? Because, I mean, no one's traveling back then. That's your year. That's like three years. You don't go, you don't travel back then. You go on expeditions that you may not come back from. You get in that trebuchet, they catapult you. You think you're going to Greece. You end up in Turkey. That's fine. But you packed for Greece. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You got to work your way back. Yeah. It's a whole trebuchet system. It's I mean, just they not... did have trains. Okay. Japanese goods were first displayed at the 1862 World's Fair in London, but it was really just... It was just some, like, bootleg shit some uh, guy named, like, Basil had gotten a hold of. He had some, like, photocopied <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh cards. Oh, my God. And, like, um, a, a homemade VHS sub of uh, Read or Die. That's partially true. <laughs> 
some Japanese diplomats saw this display yeah. and they were horrified that they were being misrepresented because remember they just reopened their ports and they're trying to like get their cred up right like yeah. they're working on their image yeah. and Basil's their brand. they're working on their brand exactly yeah. Basil's display yeah. of this you know not 100% authentic <laughs> Japanese <laughs> collection it's not a good look they're like well really that's just a subculture here so at the next World Fair in Paris in 1867 they were going to show up Basil they, they're the going to show up Basil yeah the Japanese Basil they're going to try to what about his collection of like homemade uh, polymer clay Sailor Moon figurines absolutely has, not like, like a little Basil's thumbprints in the face that's no a little like eye that's like scratched on with a toothpick no tuxedo moon is misspelled it just has one O Mon tuxedo Mon <laughs> okay uh, no 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 Paris was Japan's first real opportunity to make an impression on the west okay. to show the kind of power they were capable of but yeah. also how sophisticated they were that's why they had a tea house they built a tea house scratch. So Westerners saw for the first time authentic Japanese curio from fine items like lacquerware to more everyday objects like art prints, kimonos, fans, parasols. The French and pretty much most of Europe instantly became obsessed with everything Japanese. So this obsession with all things Japanese curio was actually coined as Japanese me. In order to profit off of this craze, the Japanese and non-Japanese alike opened up curio shops throughout Paris. <laughs> Basil's got his like little uh Basil's little done. No, He's done in this no, town. Basil's not done. He's not. Basil has like a dedicated fan base of subculture, subgenre fans who love his homemade polymer clay Sailor Moon characters. So Vincent Van Gogh and his brother Theo started selling some of those art prints we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. They're called Ukiyo-e prints, and they started selling them secondhand. So you can start to see the effects of this trend in almost every facet of Parisian culture. But especially the baguettes. No. More like the arts, architecture, landscaping, gardening, and clothing, but also home decor, um, which included the uh, ukiyo-e prints mm. that the Van Goghs were selling. Vincent was terrible at selling them. Yeah, so Vincent Van Gogh, he was a failed preacher. Mm-hmm. He was a failed art dealer. <laughs> yep. But Theo was like, hey, Vincent, uh, you got some art friends. Why don't you, uh, you know, push these prints on them? Yeah, Little did he know. Yes. Yeah, so Actually, think- no, he probably knew. <laughs> yeah, Theo seems like he's a very forgiving and understanding guy. But yeah, so Vincent had like hundreds and hundreds of these these prints. So in Europe, like Japan, these ukiyo-e prints were considered to be decorative like art, but they were not fine art. Yeah, so they weren't technically originals, even though I think today we would consider them like closer to originals than like a painting that there was only one of because there were only several hundred of these. Oh, right. Also, they could be purchased very, very inexpensively by the Japanese public and they loved them. They put them up on their walls. They're kind of like large postcards. So French artists like Manet, Degas, and Monet had already begun to collect these and they fell in love with how unique these prints were. Okay. So they liked how the scenes were illustrated and framed as well as their use of bold color in large swaths. If you've never seen a Japanese print before, your mind would be blown. My mind was blown. Doing research, my jaw dropped. (laughs) Go on. Why did they drop? I mean, I had never noticed those gradients. The gradients are killer. Mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. And we'll get we'll get into that a little later. So there were many different types of ukiyo-e artists, but listeners, you most likely know Hokusai, who made the Great Wave off Kanagawa. Hokusai's prints were the Kanagawa. most. <laughs> 
So Hokusai was the most well-known, the most in demand. Right. So the Van Goghs could not afford his prints. However, there was another artist, Hiroshige, whose works were similar in theme and they were more affordable. That's how many of Hiroshige's prints ended up in the Van Gogh's inventory. Vincent was a shitty salesman, remember, so he ended up keeping (laughs) a lot of these prints to decorate his room. This is where his love of Japanese prints grew. This is where it all began. Yeah, so they're all up in his room and he starts staring at them, looking at the compositions. Because he's sure as hell not selling them. And finally he starts staring at him and he's like, this is totally different. Totally different than anything I've ever seen. Sounds like he may have had the luxury of time to study them. Thus changing his perspective on the works. You're squinting at me. You're, you, you got your, your head cocked in a way. Do you have some theory you want to tell us? No. Some theory? No? No. Uh, my head is not cocked. To the it, side. It, I'm it not totally squinting was, but okay. at you. Yeah. Um, no, that Listener, just reminds... She was definitely squinting at us. Not just me. You, the listeners, too. She was squinting at each and every one of you. No, this just reminds me of when I had all those hours to look at that Jasper John's flag drawing that we covered. It's like a flower that hadn't sprouted yet. Sprouted? Do flowers sprout? They bloom, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a flower that hadn't bloomed yet. Yeah. It's water is time. Okay. Which is, you need, sometimes you need time. It's water is time. I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Look, all I'm saying is... It sounds like Vincent had some time with these prints in order to really study them and then come to appreciate them for something else. Yeah. Something greater than just wall decor. Okay, listeners, let's talk about the print master who influenced Van Gogh. Let's talk about Utagawa Hiroshige. So he had a pretty interesting life. Hiroshige was a firefighter, but he had always longed to be an artist. Mm. He first studied at the Kano School of Painting, which was heavily influenced by Chinese-style brushwork. This style of brushwork was influenced by Zen Buddhism. So just imagine very mindful, very purposeful brush marks. Yes. So you're probably thinking of multi-paneled screens you might have seen in museums depicting a beautiful landscape. There were a lot of different schools of painting at that time, but Kano was one of the biggest names. Okay. So, I mean, go to our website, check out the images, but most likely you've seen an image like this before. Imagine you're outdoors in your front yard. You hear a bird. You look up and there is a squirrel in a tree. In the Kano School of Painting, the tree would be detailed and realistic And then the squirrel would be depicted much larger than you would expect. So you would have a huge squirrel, like maybe the size of a cat. (laughs) Too big. Too big, really. Too big for for comfort. Um, But the the yard itself might be left out, or the clouds might be left out, or the fog, the morning fog coming in might be left out. And you would just see maybe a few bits of detail here and there for that. Sounds like they're utilizing a lot of negative space. Oh, Oh no. Did, did, we, did you feed them? Last week, we, we took the week off. So no. Great. Oh my god, they're little Tommy's stuff. Great. A little Pontremon Tommy's. Well, do something. Well, go, go, go to the pantry. <laughs> go to the pantry. Right, go to the art slice pantry. All right, let's go. Okay. Negative space is the dead space around an object, and the object itself is positive space. Negative space is just as important to the positive space because it holds the structure of the object together 
And in order to draw more accurately, it needs to be considered. For example, if you were to draw your hand that's in front of you, and you drew more negative space than your hand, which is positive space, it will be too small, and vice versa. It's a basic tool when you first learn to draw from life. Advanced artists will start to play with the negative space to make compositions more interesting. The Kano School of Painting used negative space as stand-ins for clouds, land, or fog, and it creates a tension, making for a more compelling composition. Thank you, Stephanie, for that art slice pantry entry. Uh, I believe the Pantrimon have been satiated. Luckily, none of them died. What? I was, I was really worried That's about that. That's possible. But they're kind of, no, they're kind of like plants, though. So <laughs> no malnutrition. Their little tummies are satiated. We can get on with the show. <laughs> Great. So Hiroshige, you were saying. So Hiroshige went to the Kano School of Painting, but he is still a firefighter. And he's still trying to stay alive, right? He's still, he's still <laughs> trying to make money. So like most artists then and now, he's not making a living off of his art. Yeah. Um, He's freaking out. He's having an existential crisis. He's like, do I go to grad school? <laughs> not exactly. Um, But he does apply to a trade school of sorts. Okay. So. He wants to become a printmaker. So there's money in printmaking at this time. Yes. Some. It's not great, but there's some. You can count on it kind yeah. of thing. Um, so at this time, prints in Japan were primarily woodcuts. We oh, just boy. fed you. It's in the bowl. All right. Um, we don't have time for another pantry. No. Sorry. Maybe next time. We will get to woodcuts in a different episode. Essentially, you carve the reverse, the mirror image onto a block of wood. You ink it up and voila, you have an image on a piece of paper. Magic. That is a very simple explanation of it. It's much more detailed than that. But yeah, the reverse image part always tripped me up when I took printmaking. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you want a cat on the right and a tree on the left, you have to think about it in the reverse. And so many students, when they first start printmaking, uh, their prints look a little bit funky because they're not used to that mirror image thing that happens. A little bit wonky. A little bit wonky. Mine looked, uh, mine left something to be desired. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) So at this time in Japan, due to high demand of these prints, it took a whole team of people to produce them. Right. So there was an artist with a big famous name that would then design it, mm. right? The the design had the attachment of that artist's name. Mm-hmm. So then an assistant artist, like an apprentice, would carve the image, another one would ink it, mm. and another one would add color to it. Like a little assembly line. So these artists had to train somewhere, and they would train at these print master schools. Oh, like a master's program. I guess so. So he did go to grad school? Mm. In a way, in a way. (laughs) So Hiroshige eventually trains with Utagawa Toyohide. If you look at Toyohide's work, you can see how it was a huge influence on Hiroshige. Yeah, the landscapes, the abstracted weather, the clouds, the fog. You can see a little bit of that influence in Hiroshige's work. Yeah, I agree. So Hiroshige's first big breakthrough was after a trip through Edo. Which is now Tokyo. And Kyoto through a highway called Tokaido. He stayed in all these various towns, and when he was there, he would sketch and kind of come up with ideas for future prints. So these sketches would later become the basis for a print series called 53 Stations of the Tokaido. And you can actually still hike some portions of that trail. Most of it is gone now, but the series was a huge hit. So everyone was buying these prints. It was awesome. So these types of prints were called ukiyo-e. So yeah, ukiyo-e, they were basically... 
mostly prints, but some paintings as well. Oh, okay. Images of city life, of places that normal Japanese citizens would want to travel to that maybe they hadn't been to yet, or maybe it's a memory of a place they had been. A little bit like a postcard. Or a calendar. Or a calendar, yeah. And then, so, just these beautiful landscapes. Uh, there were also, like, scenes of actors, um, and then... Some uh, sexy courtesans. Sexy, <laughs> some sexy scenes hey, to put on your bedroom wall. Boudoir. Yeah, your perhaps. boudoir. <laughs> they were cheap and they could be produced in great numbers because of that assembly line, remember, mm. like we talked about earlier. Yep. Um, so they could print several hundreds of these a day until eventually the woodblock carving would be so worn down from all the printing. It's almost like sanding it down, basically. Yeah. With all the friction. Many Japanese citizens at this time love them as much as the European collectors did. Sure. It's like, just like I said, it's like having a postcard of a place you've been or a place you want to be. That's lovely. I like that. Or an actor you like. Or a courtesan you... Or some, <laughs> okay, just... some business you want to get into, sexually speaking. That's totally fine. Yeah. You can do that. What's wrong with that? No. I don't want you to give me a look. To this day, you can still buy original Hiroshige's, although they're usually lesser known. They're kind of worn out prints, but they're still pretty affordable. However, Russell and I would encourage you to support living artists instead. Especially those artists are us. No. Maybe a little bit. Okay. <laughs> this is all to say that he printed so many that they are still in circulation. So because these prints were so affordable to everyday people, Hiroshige never really made much money from Aww. this. Yeah. And that was pretty much it for Ikioe prints. I mean, there were still some printmakers after that, but really like the cultural tides in Japan changed after that and less and less people were buying them. Uh, they had switched gears and were rapidly industrializing. That's right. So actually, Hiroshige is considered one of the last great masters. Ukiwa prints were significantly different than what was considered the norm in the West. Printmaking in Japan was more decorative, more illustrative, more abstract. Hiroshige, for example, might use dense, saturated color to stand in for water or the horizon or use simple shapes to stand in for fog, very much abstracting something in real life. I love that fog. But like the Kano school, where they would just have those big negative shapes, instead of just having like blank space or just gold there, often you'll see gradations or you'll see very saturated color fading out. It's really beautiful. So good. So you can tell that he went to the Kano school. So he's using that influence. There's that word once again to really change compositions in, in these prints. The Japanese conception of space was less realistic and more imaginative. Mm. Uh, they took more risks. Yeah. Listeners, these are amazing prints. So zoom not, in. Yeah, if you're not looking at them, go yeah, go zoom in on them. Get it get up get in, in there. there. I'm get one of those people that. I need to see the threads. Yeah. Stephanie has been kicked out of so many museums because she just presses her nose up against the the painting or the glass or the sculpture. And uh yeah, they don't they don't take kindly to her type. Listeners, on some of these prints, you can see the wood grain from yeah. the wood block like it print it imprinted onto yeah. the print. That is so cool. I am nerding out. So yeah, Van Gogh was probably pretty blown away as well because like the formal qualities that you just take for granted as part of painting or as part of drawing at this time in the West uh, was totally flipped. So like we mentioned, the compositions were a little bit more abstract, a little bit more illustrative. They cropped things. They skewed things. Mm -hmm. They enlarged things. They left things out. <laughs> they took on different perspectives like we were saying. Sometimes they even just like tilted it, tilted the composition. So... You know, it was just sideways or like something would be cropped on this side, but like full on the other side. This was a, this was blowing the minds of these artists because they were trying to fit everything in to that 
canvas. Like a photograph, essentially. Another thing we're leaving out is they they used lines to depict shape. The colors for objects were flat, and Mm -hmm. then they would just outline them like a cartoon. And to depict spatial relationships, they would use gradations or just use full-on color so that there was this implied spatial relationship to things in the picture, but it was flattened. Interesting. Mostly up until this point, Western art was leading up to mastering accurate perspective. Right. So through these prints, Western artists learned that they did not always have to arrange their artworks in the traditional way, which was from close up to far away. Yeah, exactly. These Japanese prints were treating real-life things, objects, as design elements Yes, to create a more dynamic, more poetic composition. So, and if you think about this, why the Impressionists and Post-Impressionists would have been so drawn to this work, not only the amazing color and the weird compositions, but photography was now a thing, right? It was becoming a thing, right. So, what did art have to offer if a photo could take a more realistic image of a person, place, or thing? Yeah, these painters were going to lose their jobs. Photo was coming in. You got to build a wall. Keep those photographs out. At some point, you're going to have to break away from tradition because up until that point, everything had been done in painting. You've mastered perspective. Now what? Enter Impressionism. Okay, it's the 80s, the 1880s, if you will. (laughs) All right, Vincent Van Gogh is just studying these prints, just checking them out. He was just so curious that he had to take them apart to discover their secrets. So he was beginning what we would call a master study. Yeah, he's he's, he's trying to take apart the toaster. He's brushing off the toast crumbs, trying to figure out how it works. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. No. Nothing wrong with a master study. It means part of education, art education. Exactly. So he is especially taken by a few prints by Hiroshige. So we're going to talk about a couple of those examples. All right, so the first print that Van Gogh studied, that is by Hiroshige, is called Sudden Shower Over Shinohashi Bridge and Atake from 1857. That was from his series 100 Views of Ido. Trying to one-up his 50 views of Tokaido. Hiroshige was trying to outdo himself. Yeah, Yeah. I'm doubling it. Double or nothing. (sighs) Yeah, he was. We are looking at a scene in the rain. Kind of romantic. Actually, no, really. There is a bridge across a large body of water, and there's rain coming down, just pouring on these people just trying to cross the bridge, what looks to be a very long bridge. This is a gorgeous print. The print is beautiful. The way that Hiroshige depicts rain is about the closest thing to rain I can can think of. Some of the rain is coming in straight down. Some of it is a little bit more diagonal. Some of it is kind of coming sideways. It has that feeling of rain, but it's just these like scratch marks on a piece of wood. Yeah, it looks like pen marks, like kind of like just kind of dragged beautifully down. Like with the best ruler, like the sharpest ruler, the best pen. So good. (laughs) Okay. So good. He's also approaching the composition from an angle, right? Which is something that you don't see a lot of at this time in painting. Right. The bridge seems to be going upwards. There's that beautiful gradation of the water below the bridge that is sort of acting as a reflection of that bridge in the water, but it's flat. The horizon is straight across. The bridge is going diagonal. So they don't quite match up. I also love the way he achieves atmospheric lighting, if you will, when Mm. it comes to the land across the water. Like you can see a silhouette of the like the land and the trees. 
And in that way, you can tell it's far away because it's kind of faded. It's kind of that atmospheric-ness, yeah. if you will. I also love the color of the water, right? The gradation of the water. It continues that flat gradation on up to the other part of the land like you're, you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But that color has a lot of the paper shining through. So that means the ink that they were using was much, was less saturated in that area. Okay. But it reminds me of like a summer storm where clouds roll in and just pour water on you. Mm -hmm. And then a second later, it's bright and sunny and you see the reflection of the sun in the puddles. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And actually, now that you mentioned that, I noticed that there's gradation in the sky. Mm -hmm. It's blue and then it fades up to black. The very top of the print is black. Maybe that's the cloud. The density of water in clouds. Oh, yeah. So compared to the Van Gogh copy of it, uh, I mean, let's forget the border for a second. That's <laughs> that's kind of weird in its own right. But we were talking about the gradation that is horizontal and doesn't necessarily follow the bridge across the water. It's just flat, horizontal across the composition. Van Gogh does the same thing in his painting, but he tries to follow the bridge just a bit more. Maybe not. Maybe he's just painting kind of awkwardly. But he's trying to get the the waves down, those little like pockets that the waves make. I don't know what those are called. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. And his land, which is also in the background as well, mm-hmm. his looks like a winter wonderland. I'm sure that's probably <laughs> not what he was going for, but that's what it kind of looks like to me. He's putting in too much detail, right? He's layering on too yeah. much paint. Whereas with the print, Hiroshige used less ink. Yeah, it's just a big shape of one color with Light. a little bit of translucency. Yes, Van Gogh is just piling on the paint in his painting. He's using those tiny little brush strokes that he became known for later. Mm-hmm. And he is trying to depict a lot of detail just in that little area. Yeah, that being said, his colors don't gradate the same. Right, because you can't do that kind of gradation with oil paint if you're painting that way. Yeah, Van Gogh's painting just feels just heavier and denser overall versus mm-hmm. the, the print. It's lighter. It's It feels more like a sudden shower, whereas Van Gogh's feels like a sudden shower with those fat, painful raindrops <laughs> <laughs> that come out of nowhere. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not the summer rain that dries up real fast and that your shirt dries up in the hot sun. This is like that fall rain that just sticks to the earth and soaks the earth and never dries up. It's totally just pelts different. you. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. Sorry, Van Gogh. Also, I mean, the frame is weird. The framing yeah, device the frame. around Van Gogh's painting is weird. It's just weird. All right. So in the print, there are a couple red rectangles and one square with text, Japanese text. Yeah, which he didn't know how to write. So Or read. Yeah, or read. He's Uh, just trying to copy different characters that he saw in his prints. He liked it, so he expanded on it in his painting, and he made it a frame. And what's interesting is they don't even match the... I'm trying to find... I mean, I don't read Japanese, but I don't see any of the same characters anywhere that are in the Hiroshige print. It looks like he's just, I don't know, trying to copy characters. Yeah, He's he's trying to get that brush mark down. No, no. It's a little bit awkward, this frame, although I do like a painted frame within a painting. (laughs) As we discussed in the Martin Wong episode. Yeah. But also, it kind of feels like he he's obviously trying to copy the size of the Hiroshige piece, right? So the he wants that aspect ratio to remain the same. So he's trying to fit it onto what I imagine is a pre-made canvas. Maybe that's why there are two different types of frames happening here. There's the two red sides, which don't make a lot of sense. Uh, And then the 
jade green color around the actual composition itself. That makes sense. It's confusing. I mean, I think Van Gogh did a, I mean, he did a good job on the painting. I have to say, I mean, it's a decent painting, but it's nowhere near the Hiroshige piece. Well, I'm sure he learned a lot through doing this study. Mm -hmm. He learned um, how he can work on gradiating colors. And I mean, nobody really likes their master study in the end, right? Because it doesn't look like the masterpiece. Right. Never does. All right, so the next print we will discuss by Hiroshige is called Plum Park in Kamaido from 1857. And what we are looking at is a scene in a park. It looks like a plum tree grove. We're kind of standing behind a tree. We're like directly yeah. behind a tree. Like we're kind of creeping on somebody. <laughs> um, but there's nobody around. All the people are far off in the distance. They're behind a fence. So yeah. it almost feels like we've snuck into the plum grove kind of chilling. Well, you don't know. Sketching. It could have been a Okay. Maybe well, that was lost to time. I'm sure it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> um, the plum tree creeper. Wanted signs everywhere. But they didn't get a good image of him because he's behind a plum tree. Anyway, go on. Okay. All right. So we really only have like three colors happening here, maybe, or lack of color. I don't know. I see a green sort of blue. There's a gray and there's some red. But they all have a sort of gradation that makes it have more depth. The paper that it's printed on has an eggshell color. So the gradations... When they fade out, they do start to pick up a bit of that eggshell color underneath, and it does lend a softer color to to the overall composition. Interesting. I wonder if that was a an intentional choice no. because of the blossoms. Maybe the blossoms were that color. No, it's just, okay. It's just the paper. Okay. Like I was saying, he was sketching this behind a plum tree, plum tree creeper here. Um, <laughs> but it does feel like he he's using like his full page or whatever. You know what I'm saying? And then and he's cutting it off when the page ends, which is interesting because I don't think this is a composition that uh, a Western artist would have chosen necessarily. No, probably not. It is unusual for the time in Western art. Certainly. And probably the weirdest part of this, listeners, is I don't know if it's a sign or what, what do you think that is up it's in the left hand side? It's a wood, side? like a wooden plank of sorts. Yeah. But is it part of a window? Is it a, you're oh, right, it is it part a of a sign? Maybe he's looking out side of his window or maybe he's like on a porch i don't know interesting um the other thing i find really fascinating about hiroshige's piece the gradation is defining space in a weird way Mm -hmm. in sort of just just a hint of defined space so he has depicted this plum tree as a flat tree there's not a lot of dimensionality to it right it's mostly flat Mm -hmm. But the way that the gradation is used in the darkest areas starts to hint at a certain depth on the tree. Mm -hmm. So some of the branches are maybe pushing backwards. Some of them are coming forwards. It's just a hint of it. Mm -hmm. But but it's it's not really even there. But it's enough to remind you, hey, yeah, trees, you know, they're they're not just like these flat things. The sky is red. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's sunset. Um, And the grass is like this blue-green. So those are complementary colors. So they're kind of fighting with one another. But separating the two is the lightest part of the gradation of either color. So it's it's kind of beautiful. It's almost like a flag if you don't think about like all the other shapes and whatnot. Yeah, I could see that. Or like (laughs) tie-dye in a weird way. Oh my gosh, yes, yes. And then I just think it's really pretty how the little blossoms just kind of dot the composition kind of in random places, mostly in the middle. But it's odd, but it's kind of a lovely print. The blossoming on the trees, where he's depicted the branches, not only is it weird to have like a branch front and center, 
but there are all these smaller branches that are jetting upwards or kind of falling out of the composition, coming back into the composition, that fragments the composition into a bunch of shapes, Mm -hmm. which is not what you're going to see in Western art at this time. They would probably consider this a bad composition. Probably. Also, though, but even in printmaking, like, why are you complicating it for yourself? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah, that, like, colorist is like, fuck, I gotta, like, put on... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so should we talk about Van Gogh's version? Let's. Okay. So Van Gogh's version is called Flowering Plum Tree 1887. So once again, only 30 years later from the original. Not that much time has passed. So the view is pretty much the same. The sky is red. The grass is green. But in this case, it is... What kind of green? It's green. It's like an earthy green. Earthy green. And then the sky is like a blood crimson red. But see, the tree... The tree is almost like a, like a, what would you call it, burgundy? It's maroon burgundy, something like that. There's some browns and some deep, deep purplish blues in there, some teals, some dark teals in there. There's a, he's using a lot of different colors. Right. And it seems the only place he tries to tackle the gradation is in the sky mm-hmm. above the blossoms. Yeah. What I find most interesting about Van Gogh's version of this, he really... He's really using a line in this one. The trees in the middle ground, they have a dark, almost black outline around them. They're looking cartoony. Yeah, they're looking cartoony. And the thing is, he's using, once again, he's using oil paint. So he's using his tiny little brush and he's trying to draw it. And if you've ever drawn with, uh, (laughs) with a brush... With oil, it doesn't work that well. This is eyelash brush. Yeah. And the gradation, like Steph was saying, not working out so well. Let's talk about that. Because he's just, again, he's just piling on the paint. Mm -hmm. I just want him to stop. Like, if he had pulled me aside (laughs) and been like, Stephanie... Tell me the truth. What do you think about this? Go, you got to stop with the the gradation. You're doing it all wrong. Yeah, it's bad. I I haven't painted in like 10 years, but I can tell you (laughs) you're going too far. Yeah, I paint. It's bad. Um, And then so we (laughs) have that the border. Once again, it's this sickly orange color. I like it. You like the orange? Well, I like the orange. Yeah. I like it next to that green. Once again, we have the Japanese characters. They look really anemic. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how else to say it. He just didn't execute it well. And I I don't expect him to. But like Steph said, for the first image, he's trying and he's learning from it. And that's what master studies are for. I think he actually like drew a blossom like uh, on the on the right side there, like the third character down. He's just like, ah, fuck it. Let's just draw a little blossom right here. I don't know why my voice is like this. Okay. Oh, you're right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And he's doing it kind of half-hearted, too, with the, with the central tree. He's trying to mimic that gradation that Hiroshige has on the tree. But he's, he's just not... He, he, does, he doesn't know what he wants to do. He's like, he's fence-sitting. He's on the fence. He's like trying right. to do both. He's trying to depict some bark. He's trying to do a simple gradation, which he doesn't know how to do. And he's trying to also depict shadow and dimensionality, which, I mean, you kind of got to choose what you're doing here. And once again, they're two different mediums, right? If I told someone to do a master study of a print with oil paint, it'd be hard to do. Expect some struggles. Yeah. Okay. Certainly expect some struggles. <laughs> it's a totally different medium. Oh, the more I look at this, the more I'm just like, it's, it's a bad. Hot, it's a hot mess. It's not so good. But what I do think this shows is Van Gogh was not treating these like curio. He was, like I, like we said, he's trying to take apart the toaster, brushing away the toast crumbs, trying to figure out how it works. He's very serious about them. As he spent more time looking at them and learning to appreciate them, he began to see these prints, the u- ukiyo-e prints, as artistic examples equal to the great masterpieces 
of Western art exactly. history. And he was writing to his brother constantly about how beautiful these prints were. And it actually started yeah. to change how he viewed art making itself. Right. So when it came to Ukiyo-e, he was very interested in the unusual perspective, the vibrant color, the everyday objects, the attention to details mm. from nature, and just the general, like, zen vibes. Those general zen vibes. Yeah. Uh, general zen vibes reminds me of a futon store I used to live near <laughs> that only sold futons. So he starts to find his footing when it comes to trying to wrap his head around everything he's learned from looking at these Hiroshige prints. So you can start to see the influence of the Japanese prints in his work. Once you know what we know, yeah. once you know that he was inspired by Japanese prints, you won't be able to unsee it. You can't it. unsee it. All right. So one of the first paintings that you can start to see the influence of the Okiwa prints is in Portrait of Pere Tangi from 1887. Mm. So here we have a sitter in front of a wall covered in ukiyo-e prints. Yeah, so this was Van Gogh's art dealer, even though Van Gogh, I think, only sold one painting. Really? <laughs> yeah, his entire life. You can see the Japanese influence in this work, not just in the prints behind him, but in the fact that Van Gogh is now using line to define the outline of Mr. Tangi. It's not black, but it's there. It's blue. It's green at times. It's a little bit more graphical. But he's made it his own. All right. Next up is self-portrait dedicated to Paul Gauguin ah. from 1888. Russell, you look like you have something to say. I'm, I'm speechless for several reasons. One is that it's dedicated to Paul Gauguin, who <laughs> I don't really know what to say about him. You don't know what to say about him? I'm sure we'll get to him at some point. But also, uh, Steph, you're smiling at me. Help me out here. Okay. Well... <laughs> Um, so Van Gogh started getting into Japanese culture. Okay, not just the prints, but he was interested in what the culture was behind the prints. Right. So he probably had a misconception about how artists actually trained in Japan. Yeah. But he wanted to train like artists in Japan. Like he thought they trained. Yeah. <laughs> we mentioned that he studied to be a priest. And he was fired for giving all of the money from the church and his own salary to the poor people. So he was bad at being a priest Yeah, as I mean, well. he was good at following the <laughs> Bible, but he uh, was bad at being a priest. Okay. So then when he was in London, he got really into socialism. And so that that side of Buddhism really appealed to him. This this community of, of Buddhists or artists or whatever. He's okay. combining these ideas, right? Living together, supporting one another. Uh, kind of like the house opposite, like we talked oh, about yeah. last episode. Oh, yeah. Well, and then he got this idea that he would find this Zen environment, right, that the Buddhists would would probably make art in, according to Van Gogh. And he was convinced that he had to move to the south of France to do this. Okay. And he invited all his friends. And guess Only who, Paul Gauguin showed, showed up. up. Guess yeah. who showed up. Yeah. Uh, long story short, that's how he lost his ear. Basically. Um, but before he did that, he altered his appearance in a different way in this mm. portrait. So it's a little cringy. We're going to yes. be honest. Yeah. yeah. It's Put a nice that painting. There. It is a nice painting. His skin is slightly more yellow. Mm -hmm. And he shaved his head like a monk. And his eyes are, you know, a little more Asian. Yeah, they so do. He, I don't think he's doing, he's not doing yellow face, right? I mean, he is. But... It's more in deference. I don't think he... It's not like how somebody would wear blackface and to make fun of a, a culture or a people or a race. Um, so I think he's attempting to apply these romanticized ideas 
of of the Japanese culture into his own life. And here it's like he's literally doing it. He's yeah. literally applying it to himself yeah. as he would like to apply to his life. But he can't do that because only Paul Gauguin showed up. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the worst friend? All right. Moving right along. Next painting is Bedroom in Arles. From 1888. So once again, we see that line starting to show up. It's really apparent this time. The line changes colors, though. It's really interesting. Sometimes it's like this dark, dark green. Sometimes it's this red. It's more subtle that way. But again, he's made it his own. He also did not use any shadows in this composition. Oh, right. So everything looks more flat, almost cartoonish, like the prints. Yeah, that's that's very true. And it's more stylized, too, which was something that Van Gogh is very interested in with those Japanese prints. He started to believe that he needed to develop his own style, much like the master printmakers had, their own sort of flavor of that ukiyo-e print. Ukiyo-e flavor? So, and that developed into what he was known for. All right, all right. Next up is Starry Night from 1889, one of the most well-known paintings ever. Of course. Ever. All right, so he painted this while he was in a mental institution. So this was after he cut off his ear. Mm. This is the view outside of his window. It's a night. A a starry night. It's a starry night, yeah. (laughs) Um, And the sky is illuminating the town below, which... Everything has an outline from the hills to the church steeples. Very little shadows. Very little shadows at all. Right. He's using dark hues instead. Mm -hmm. Dark blues and greens. And his swirling style, like we just mentioned, is in full effect now. So the swirl, there's one large swirl, is just extremely reminiscent of Hokusai's Mm. The Great Wave, if you recall. So he... What? He probably saw it and was remembering it because he it's likely he didn't have access right. to those prints anymore. So Well, they couldn't afford it. Hokusai was too popular. He couldn't well, that's true. He couldn't afford it, but even if he did, there's no way he could have had them with him. But also we know that it's likely as well because he mentioned Hokusai to Theo in yeah, his letters. He actually right? never mentioned Hiroshige, where yeah, he talked weird. about Hokusai quite a bit. Well, it's certainly clear that these Ukiyo-e artists had a lasting impression on him. This is all to say that doing a master study for Van Gogh, it altered his work almost permanently. Changed the way he saw the world. It changed the way he painted. It made him discover new tricks that he probably wouldn't have discovered on his own otherwise. That is the point of a master study, though, I would say. And the point of influence. And when influence works best, to take it back to that Picasso quote, when we were arguing that great artists don't steal, they actually let themselves be influenced and then process that influence, filter it through their own experience, filter it through their own output, and come up with something that is a little bit different. Exactly. Well said. Stephanie. Russell. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. We're here. We've traversed the skewed landscape, walked on through the gradated horizon, tripped over the oval-shaped clouds, but regained our footing unscathed, all with these two Van Gogh master studies in tow. We did we did stop for a bowl of tonkatsu, of course, and we got a little bit of the grease on the Van Gogh painting, but we wiped it off. We wiped it off. I don't think anybody will know. I think we're cool there. But we're standing in front of the Art Slice Museum, okay. and we're here. We're at the door. We're walking on through. Are we bringing these two paintings with us to put in the Art Slice Museum with its free snacks, its free nap pods, suspended hammocks, its vegetable garden that you can 
you know, freely take any vegetables or fruits from. Are they going in the museum? Yeah. They are not. They're not? No. Okay. Why? They're not quite there. Yeah. They're just not there yet. They were studies. I disagree. Really? Yeah. I don't think they're good. I think it shows an artist that even a huge name like Van Gogh is influenced by other artists, can be permanently changed by looking at art and not stealing from that art, but learning from that art. So while I don't think it would be in the main wing of the Art Slice Museum, I might have it in like an educational wing. Do we have one of those yet? Expansion? Is it time to expand? sounds like we're about to expand. (laughs) Would Would he even have wanted that on a wall, on display? Maybe not. I think it was for him. You might be right. He's working through it. I'm not Van Gogh, but I wouldn't want my studies out on a wall. True. I think this was for him. I think it shows that he's human, though. I think we we talk these artists up, at, you know, in museums, everywhere you go. These these are these are geniuses. Van Gogh's like br- a brilliant genius, a misunderstood genius whose yeah. life is too short, right? Yeah. And we don't fully understand the vulnerability of artists as they learn and as they find their footing. I think most people who walk into a museum just think. Oh shit, these these people are just born with it. They're not, they're not like coming out of the womb like able to draw like Michelangelo or whatever. Right. You know what I'm saying? They're they 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 stumble, they like hit their toe in the dark, you know? Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think it's nice to see that they're human. And really what separates somebody like Van Gogh is that they they keep an investigative mind open. They look at the world around them. They let influence kind of wash over them. And they they process that influence and they let it change them. They don't steal. They process. I feel really bad. Why do you feel bad? Because. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. No, I know you're not. I'm just like, well, no, well, now I'm like trying to walk back what I said. But at the same time, I don't. Do museums consider what the artist would have wanted? Would, Would Van Gogh have wanted this piece out on display? I probably wouldn't want mine out. He probably wouldn't, but I think if he heard you say what you just said, he'd be like, okay, yeah, this might inspire someone Mm -hmm. to not be afraid to struggle, not be afraid to be vulnerable, to be open-minded and be okay with making mistakes because it's going to lead you to make better work. So (laughs) let's build an educational wing of the Art Slice Museum. Yeah, I like that. I like that better. All right. Okay. We'll throw it in there somewhere. And listeners, we would love to uh, be given the tour of your education wing at your Art Slice Museum. So let us know what you thought about this piece. Let us know if it would go in your educational wing, if it would go in your museum, uh, or any of the previous work that we've covered. We would love to hear what you liked about it, what you didn't like about it. You can email us your thoughts or a short audio clip of your thoughts to artslicepod at gmail.com. And thanks to everyone who has sent in their art assignments. We are finally getting around to uploading them. Uh, If you're new to Art Slice, or if you're just now getting around to doing one of our art assignments from any one of the episodes we have so far, you can send them to artslicepod at gmail.com, and we'll post them to our website and our Instagram page when we get around to it. (laughs) (laughs) We are super grateful to everyone who has subscribed, shared, and reviewed our show. We love hearing that you're enjoying the show because we're a new podcast. Yeah, we're just a we're a helpless baby podcast it's and in our little diapers, <laughs> podcast sized diapers. Yeah. Okay, um, we spend a lot of time making these, and it really makes it worthwhile to hear from you all and listeners. We have only like three or four stickers left, but if you'd like one, please leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. 
or any other platform, and we will send you one of those stickers for free. Just message us a screenshot of the review and your address. Yes, reviews, subscribing, sharing, it all helps us please the algorithmic god (laughs) who is hungry and thirsty for blood. Oh, God. And also, it helps folks uh, like you find out about the show. And a special thank you to musician Siddhartha Courses for letting us use some of his work. You can check out his music at his Bandcamp page, which we will link on the website. And remember, listeners, you can find us on all the things. Like TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, email, Instagram, all at ArtSlicePod. So that about does it for us this week. We will see you next time. And no. And no. Your kid could not have printed that. Bye. Bye. Bye.